nice to speak to you, Dave DeCamp. You are, of course, news editor over at AnnieWar.com. It's great to have you back. How have you been? Good, Armando. Thanks for having me back on. Of course, of course. Yeah, so I wanted to start off with the elephant in the room or the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is the Ukraine and Russia conflict. Since we last spoke, it's been almost 60 days since we last spoke. We reached the 100 days mark last weekend, and over the last few weeks, there has been a degrading or more of a disintegrating of the Russian military's front into the eastern portion of Ukraine, which is known as the Donbass. And it does seem as though that their troop losses are very high. It seems that their logistics aren't able to keep up with the kind of demand that the war has. It seems that also Ukraine is really beginning to strain, especially their armed forces in particular, the actual human beings, not the equipment. It does seem that they're really under quite a lot of strain. And it is surprising to me that there is not a more vociferous or or louder cry for peace by the Ukrainians than there is now. What's interesting is that the West, ever since that speech by Joe Biden, I believe that happened in Warsaw a few months ago, there's just been a continual amplification and escalation of tensions. And it kind of teed off this past weekend as the Russians are warning, quite honestly, look, if you supply them with rockets that can reach inside of Russia, we will go about striking more and more targets within Ukraine. And the United States and the UK, the United States, of course, provided over $50 billion to Ukraine, <laughs> not to end homelessness, <laughs> you know, not to bring down the, the cost of gas or anything, but to Ukraine. And and mostly, and as you know, Nancy Pelosi also stated in that bill, over $20 billion of it was actually just going to make sure the Defense Department had the supplies that they gave to Ukraine resupplied. She stated that. My thing is with this is that there's an incredible amount of money and supplies coming into Ukraine and the West is being warned and instead Ukraine is trying to make promises saying that we won't strike within Russian territory even though they're right on the border of Russian territory and the United States and the UK are like, you know, we're going to go ahead and give them the rocket systems anyway and we're just going to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, that's what it seems like the US and Britain and several Eastern European NATO states aren't really concerned about escalating the war and turning it into a wider conflict by providing these weapons. I mean, Russia has been very clear that they're going to respond in some way. And they bombed Kiev on Sunday for the first time in, since April, I believe, in response to them sending the rockets. Now, they have a range of about 50 miles each system that the US and UK are sending, but they could be outfitted with missiles that reach up to 200 miles they have the launchers so they could always just get those missiles in the future and the next escalation of western military aid and you know they got these assurances from ukrainian politicians that they're not going to attack russian territory the u.s doesn't know where these weapons are going i mean there's been some pretty revealing reports that once the weapons kind of cross into ukraine the u.s intelligence they have no line on them one official in a CNN report described it like dropping the weapons into a black hole. So, you know, you never know where these weapons could end up. And 50-mile range um, could could get pretty far into Russian territory if they launch it on the border there. And, you know, the way things are going now, I mean, Russia is making slow, but they've been making steady gains in the east and the Donbass and, and elsewhere over the past two months. And, 
Ukraine, Zelensky, you know, they're saying that they're going to try to drive Russia out of all their territory, including Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014, which even uh, I've seen some reports that U.S. officials don't think that's a realistic goal. So we wonder, you know, how long are we going to be supporting this war if, if that's what we're we're pushing for and how many Ukrainians are going to die to try to achieve that goal. And it doesn't seem, although there's been kind of fractures, which I think is pretty interesting and important in the NATO alliance, you know, you have France, Germany, and Italy have all been calling for negotiations and have been more hesitant to send these heavy weapons. I think that's kind of a positive sign, but at the same time, there's no sign that we're slowing down. Like you said, it's already over $50 billion the U.S. has pledged to, to spend on this war. And, you know, that's supposed to last through the end of the fiscal year, which for the U.S., for the federal government, ends on September 30th. So that's not that far away. So we might see another massive bill passed here. Although there is also some opposition in Congress that's kind of growing over the lack of oversight. You've seen this from Rand Paul, but also Elizabeth Warren, kind of two ends of the spectrum there. Because there's just no oversight. I mean, we're sending all these weapons and all this money into Ukraine to a notoriously corrupt government. You know, the the U.S. always used the excuse of Ukraine's corruption of why they wouldn't admit them into NATO. And now we're sending them some of the aid is just direct. They call it like direct financial aid. They just give the money to the Ukrainian government. And there's zero oversight. And now in Afghanistan, there was a special inspector general and... Although it didn't change anything, it didn't stop the waste. <laughs> At least we knew what, how, how big of a scam it was and how it was just a boon for defense contractors. And that's what we're seeing now with Ukraine. So I think hopefully that opposition in Congress grows in the, in the European nations. You know, France, Germany, and Italy, it's significant because they represent the most populous EU countries, the three most populous EU countries. So it's not nothing that their stance is kind of different. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm also concerned they're going ahead with this Russian oil ban. There's some exemptions for Hungary. I think that's kind of big because once the EU kind of, if they do even get off Russian gas, that's kind of a point of no return is the way I I look at it. I hope things turn around before then. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that's really wild about all this is that, you know, war is a racket and that's always been the case, especially in the case of the United States. There were commissions back insofar as like the 20s and the 30s of the United States government investigating people like DuPont or Carnegie Steel in terms of just absolutely ripping off the U.S. government in terms of contracts, in terms of money. You know, this is something that Rashida Tlaib and other progressive lawmakers were making hay over a few months ago in regards to a particularly onerous defense contractor that was essentially paying themselves hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of bonuses and also their salary, but they just weren't actually providing the U.S. government with the kind of materials that they needed. At the same time, Transdime reported to the SEC that your total compensation in 2020 was just over $68 million, including dividends and option awards. So while Transdime was laying off employees and cutting salaries, it was paying you more than $68 million, even when accounting for the measly 2% of your salary that you gave up. So to recap, at the time when the American families were and still are struggling with the financial burden of the pandemic, Transdime paid two executives here today around $90 million, while at the same time laying off, furloughing, cutting the salaries of its other employees. $90 million, I might add, that Transdime got by screwing over the American people. And they're charging an extraordinary upcharge to it. And what's really concerning, you know, with all this is exactly right. There's 
an interesting conversation to be had about arming Nazis in Ukraine, <laughs> you know, that because mm-hmm. that's happening. That's I mean, I mean, regardless of the extent and all the rest of it, we are arming people who are openly <laughs> hostile to modern society, period, in that country. And what's interesting is that, you know, we're just going to go ahead and put up all of this money, all of these weapons without any way to go about tracking where these weapons are going to go, who can go about using them and for what, because it isn't quite an Afghanistan situation, but especially within Eastern Ukraine, it could very well get to the point where it's just an all-out ethnic and civil war that breaks out in the East. And that's already happened before. Vladimir Zelensky continues to assert that he's going to maintain total control over Ukraine in terms of its territory. That's going to be a very long, very difficult war. And, and as you stated, you know, that stuff only lasts through, you know, another three or so months. That, you know, that's that's wild. The, the, the idea that there's over $50 billion. Like if you had $1,000 a day since the day Jesus Christ was born, you wouldn't have a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. And these guys are like, you know, what? we're going to give them 50 and, you know, we're just going to see what happens. Mm-hmm. It, it's really concerning because that is a situation where economic warfare and i talked about this a few months back when this started this economic warfare that they started is really dangerous because as i as i told you a few months ago the shrinking of the united states empire and shrinking of quote-unquote western influence is not a good thing even though we might be able to sort of retain and feel more powerful within our own little realm but at the same time that comes at a price and Places like India and China are trying to step up in order to buy Russian resources and also, you know, raw materials, minerals. There is also a push by these countries to form a block whereby they are no longer, you know, with along with South Africa and also Brazil, India, China, Russia, the BRICS countries are essentially they want to be able to create a counterweight to the U.S. dollar. They want to be able to maintain themselves outside of the U.S. financial system. And that is a huge separation between quote-unquote east and west the final thing i'll say on that is it's really concerning because the world has about nine to ten weeks as of i think it was two weeks ago worth of wheat left many places in places like egypt and throughout middle the middle east and africa those supplies are basically gone and so they can't get the stuff out of kiev I'm not exactly sure as to why that is. I mean, you know, maybe you'd have information on that, but I mean, my my guess is is because the Russians would bomb it. So with the grain shipments, everybody's blaming it on you know the Russian blockade, and then Russia is blaming it on Ukraine because they mined all their ports, which they did. There's not really an argument that they didn't lay mines, but you know the the narrative is that it's all Russia's fault. You know, and they're definitely both parties are to blame there. They've been talking to Turkey about setting up a corridor, which would involve demining the ports and also kind of getting a guarantee from Russia that, you know, any ships entering and exiting those ports would, would be safe. And then there's also the other aspect of it is, is Russia's grain export. They've been hindered by U.S. and Western sanctions. Now, this is always the case. There's, there's exemptions for food and humanitarian goods, but the way sanctions work, they've sanctioned Russian shipping. Russian ships are under sanctions. So companies that provide insurance for them to enter other ports and things like that, even if there's exemptions, they just don't want to deal with, they would have to inspect the cargo. I mean, it slows everything down. You see this with Iran. There's exemptions for medical supplies, but there's medicine shortages because of the sanctions. Because many banks, they just say, they just don't want to bother 
doing business with these countries that are under sanctions because there's always a risk of violating sanctions and you have to be really careful. You know, there's a lot of factors into this grain shortage and there was a, a shortage building before the war. The war has definitely exacerbated it, but it's just not as simple as, you know, Biden wants to blame everything on Putin, Putin's price hike, but there's just so many factors. And then it's interesting, you mentioned about how the West is kind of hurting itself with the sanctions. As the EU has agreed on this oil ban that takes effect by the end of the year, Russia is already selling more oil to Asia than, than Europe. Asia's become the top buyer of oil in the past few months, and they're shipping like more than twice the amount of oil they were before the war. So Russia's really, there might be some initial shock when they stop selling oil to Europe. In, in the long term, I think they're, they're going to be fine when it comes to selling their energy, and Europe's really going to suffer from this. I mean, you look at gas prices here in the U.S., it's really getting crazy. And, uh, and then of course, you know, it really <laughs> exposes the hypocrisy now that Biden is planning to go visit, uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia to push him to produce more oil. When the whole idea is that we're saying we banned R Russian oil because they invaded their neighbor, but Saudi Arabia has been fighting a war against its neighbor since 2014, the brutal invasion, uh, in the most kind of brutal war tactics imaginable. And, but they've been doing that with us support, but I think people are getting gas prices if people are pumping gas and it and they see the price no matter there are plenty of reasons for gas prices to rise it's not always the president's fault <laughs> but biden has definitely made it worse by his russia policy but still th there's other factors but it doesn't really matter i mean people go to the pump right. and, they're, and they're paying more than double what they were when the last guy was in office you know they're going to be playing the president it's one of the few things that people really feel that in inflation yeah, Biden's things are not looking good for his uh, <laughs> his next term. Oh man, I mean, man, I mean that guy is in deep trouble. <laughs> Yo, oh yeah. my gosh, I plan to talk to Ryan Grimm about that. I also want to talk to uh, Alan Chipman about that here soon. But oh man, mm. Pete, that guy is in so much deep trouble. I mean, the you know it's a perfect storm, and you know it's amazing that you mentioned because I I do want to get out of the way real quick. Saudi Arabia, the especially under Barack Obama, like the the United States was literally refueling their planes not only provided mm -hmm. them the planes in terms of like over 50 billion dollars again we literally gave them the F16s that were bombing and then were refueling them in the air afterward mm -hmm. the US government decided to stop going about doing that and then France and the United Kingdom just picked up right where we all left off and you know that conflict's been going on for quite a while and insofar as I understand there was a ceasefire there i i do really want to get onto the mainstay of this which is that economic warfare, that preventing of a lot of goods getting out of Russia into the rest of the world and global economy is causing that huge issue. And now we've sort of sandwiched this juggernaut. You know, we've been able to accomplish what Stalin and Mao couldn't, which is to, you know, unify these absolutely massive countries in terms of population, in terms of productivity, in terms of landmass, raw materials, minerals, all, all of that. They've been able to push those two together in the course of this conflict. And the Russians and the Chinese are totally fine with working with one another. I mean, they both completely understand they are authoritarian regimes. One is, I think, far more corrupt than the other because, you know, the Chinese Communist Party actually, to its credit, doesn't really tolerate at all corruption. And if you are caught in doing something like that, especially if it's not in the good graces of Xi Jinping, um, all I can say is, you know, the Chinese court system has a 99.9% .9 conviction rate. So it's, it's not, it's not going to be good. 
But, you know, the real issue about this is, insofar as I can see, is that that sort of economic warfare, not allowing those materials to flow freely in the world is completely contradictory to the neoliberal vision that was sold in the 90s and the 80s. The sort of Reagan, Bill Clinton, international, like we just ship stuff from the all corners of the globe in order to feed and house and clothe people. Now it seems that that is going away and this war has completely disrupted supply chains. Now in the United States, and I'm, I'll talk to William Spriggs about this in hopefully in the next week or so, it just seems like there is no real understanding on the behalf of the Biden administration of like, we should pass a bill that will give us the authority and the ability to control prices, or the very least we should look into that. And there's no executive action or even, you know, administrative action to go about bringing down these prices. And it's just, it's silly. It just, it doesn't make any sense. And what's incredible is he's really harming his own reelection chances, but also people are like really suffering. Like there are articles out within the Guardian that detail people who live in their cars. They want to be able to, because they're poor to the point they live in their cars want to be able to keep engine going at night but they can't do that because of the rise in gas places like uber lyft and whatnot are not giving out subsidies to their contractors which they consider independent contractors so people are really hurting and i think that i mean and i've said this before donald trump was a vote of no confidence in the united states government period with Joe Biden, he was this white knight hope we can get vaccines in arms, we can get back to normal stimulus checks. And he sold a bill of goods that just it, it isn't. I think even before the Ukrainian and Russian conflict, it wasn't quite going to sell because the years of easy money that we have wasted on austerity from the Barack Obama administration. That sort of easy money could have been used to actually help people. But instead, there was a $25 plus up on unemployment in the Obama administration. And it was austerity across the board. Instead of providing cash to states, instead of actually expanding social safety net, that wasn't even done. So we're now in this situation where it's just this perfect storm of a, a geopolitical conflict that's turned into a war economic sanctions and an economic warfare that has largely backfired on the west by having to close ourselves off in this hope that we can sell natural gas to europe until 2035 halliburton wells back on in exchange for i mean there's not really ever <laughs> uh, an exchange that we're getting it's just sort of out there as to what we're getting back and what's unspoken is, is is that it's power. But what's really concerning to me is that this this sort of perfect storm of years wasted of easy money, that geopolitical conflict, this economic warfare, and his just total, the U.S. government's total inability to stand up to corporate power or do anything about it is destroying the country. Poverty rates are skyrocketing. They refuse to even continue to pass or, or, or continue on, you know, child subsidies that they had or the child uh, tax credit, which they had put out in July. It's getting progressively worse. And I, and I really fear for what the United States is going to do or what Joe Biden is going to do in order to try and, and make that right. I'm a libertarian. And a lot of this blame for inflation, everything is on Trump and is on these massive stimulus bills that he signed into law, you know, creating $2 trillion 
when that much money is injected into the money supply, that's going to create inflation. It's pretty basic principle. And, uh, you know, we're, a lot of what we're seeing right now is a result of that. Another thing like price controls too, I, I don't think price controls are a solution because that will just end up with shortages. Uh, you know, it's not good that prices are so high, but if they tried to control the price of gas then we would end up with gas sh shortages and that would be a huge problem too. So the short-term solution, I'm not the quick fix, you know, it's tough to say what that could be. I think my view is, you know, less government intervention, but you know, the way things are now with just all this money printing and, and government spending, it's just going to make everything worse in the long run. I don't think that my libertarian economics, you know, we're not going to go back to that anytime soon in this country, but I think ultimately what we need to do or else I think the empire is going to collapse. It's going to be even worse in the country is go back to first the less interventionist foreign policy, stop trying to control the world. And then we can work on our money supply and go back to a commodity-based dollar. But again, that's that's not going to happen within the next two years <laughs> under the Biden administration. So it's tough to say because things can change so quick. But I think a Republican, I think it's pretty safe to say, is going to win in 2024. The question is who it's going to be. But yeah, I think Biden's really on the decline with all this going on. Yeah, and I and I want to gently push back on some of that. So, in terms of like going about creating money, I totally get that. When it comes to the Federal Reserve's balance sheets, it's it's quite complicated. I don't want to go into all of it, but it's pretty clear that when the Federal Reserve goes about creating money, you know, we have the world's reserve currency. We can go about printing money whenever we get around to it. The majority of our debt is owed to ourselves. I I I I want to push back on that a little bit because also within the UK, you know, they're not just creating money out of whole cloth. Those countries really can't do that. They're not the world's reserve currency. And yet they're facing, the UK is facing well over 9% inflation. In the United States, it's somewhere above 8%. And within the UK, it's predicted to get worse. In the United States, it very well could get worse. I, I'm not entirely sure I buy the argument or that I would accept the argument that it's simply the amount of money that's been put out that's causing this. I think quite a bit of it, as it's been shown, I mean, as soon as Joe Biden said, you know, there's going to be a $100 tax on every container that sits there, all of a sudden things start getting moving. You know, I was just talking to someone the other day who works in the trucking industry, and they were stating how difficult it was to get things out of ports because of how cities are essentially, because you know, City Port Authority has the ability to keep and retain certain, uh, almost call them dollies, but certain frames on wheels that allow you to move these larger crates from overseas. And they're essentially keeping them in order so that they can continue to tax these companies. And then the companies are also able to keep prices high. So there's quite a lot of price manipulation and price gouging that's going on. If you actually look at WTI crude index, it's well within line of what it was going out past the 2008 recession. And it's just it's it's bizarre to me that there is no reining in of corporate power, because what it seems to me, the way that we do agree, at least I hope we do, that the military industrial complex is a leech on the federal government and an, and an incredible source of waste and fraud and is a huge liability to us. I, I further think that that same still applies to the United States government because I was very critical of people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, 
and Donald Trump, who were out there stating in late 2020, you know, we want to go about passing this COVID bill. And it got hung up. Why? Because corporations are looking for a liability shield in order so that people can't come back and be like, hey, you exposed me to COVID. You know, I have long COVID now or I have heart heart condition. I have I've had strokes or, or something along those lines. Now they can't come back and do that. That was that was not included in the bill. And that was a major compromise, which got the stimulus checks down to six hundred dollars. Regardless of, of, of how we go about dealing with the economic situation, I think we definitely agree that the situation itself is untenable, both politically for Joe Biden and also economically for everyday people. But I think also just in general, when it comes to faith in the United States government, you know, love him or hate him, Bernie Sanders, he stated very clearly in the beginning of last year when he was incoming chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. Incoming chairman, Senate Budget Committee. In, in, incoming chairman, Senate Budget Committee. Chairman Sanders puts a chill down the spine of all right-wingers everywhere. He stated, you know, this is about keeping United States faith, keeping the people's faith in the United States government to solve their problems. And it's become incredibly clear to many people that that's not going to happen. The structure of the economy is not changing. And I also I posted the, you know, the labor numbers. I try to do it every month. They look terrible. I don't know if you've had a look at they look bad. Like people are like, oh, there's like three hundred and eighty thousand jobs that created and it's wonderful and all the rest of this stuff. And it's like, guys, insofar as I can see, there's over two hundred and ninety thousand people that have slipped from full time employment to part time employment due to this idea a slowing economy people are slipping in terms of hours and also production is down by 7.3 percent and we're supposed to be in a wartime situation essentially we're giving 50 billion dollars worth of arms in the course of just i don't know about five or six months it's not making a dent in terms of actual production output is down by almost three percent it's not looking good it's not looking good at all yeah no it's not and i would say i don't mean uh that the main thing to blame for inflation is the stimulus checks that we got. My idea of reigning in corporate power is to stop bailing them out and stop giving them grants because that is the main driver of the inflation that we saw uh, compared to what they've given the American people. You know, if that became the policy to send checks to Americans, the, the U.S. government, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I would prefer that to what our current system is, which is, you know, corporate welfare. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the labor shortage, I mean, it right. it does seem really bad because there are a lot of jobs out there, but they don't pay. Even minimum wage at 15, if it was at $15 an hour, that's not enough to support a family, pretty much no matter where you live in this country. So things are really bleak. And that's why I think it's so outrageous and why more people are kind of waking up to it. Because when Russia first invaded Ukraine, it seemed like they had most of the population on their side to... There was poll after poll saying, yeah, we have to support Ukraine. But after that $40 billion bill, I mean, that's so much money that I think that woke a lot of people up. And unfortunately, Bernie Sanders and all the progressives in Congress voted for it, which was really disappointing because I've always considered them kind of allies in our foreign policy. I was really disappointed with Ro Khanna, too, because he was he's really good on Yemen and stuff. And he was good on Ukraine a few years ago. He was warning about arming uh, neo-Nazis there in 2018, but now he doesn't seem that concerned. I just don't get how they can justify sending that much money when it is such a risk. Even Ilhan Omar, when the when the war first started, she said something you know about the lack of oversight, about flooding weapons into a country. Maybe that's not a good idea. She voted against the Russian oil ban, but then she went ahead and, and voted for the uh, 
40 billion, uh, which was really disappointing because I think her and Rokana know better uh, than that. I've lost most faith in Bernie Sanders over the past few years when it comes to his foreign policy. It seems like it's just not an area that he prioritizes. You have this opposition growing in the Republican, kind of the populist right to the policy in Ukraine, which I think is good. And hopefully that spreads, you know, and this is just Congress because a lot of our friends and People that we work with are leftists. I'm not saying that American leftists are, are bad on the issue of war now, but it, nobody's representing you, you guys in Congress, which is unfortunate. I don't really consider myself to be represented in Congress either, except for I think Thomas Massey is probably, I think, the most reliable now when it comes to our, our views. Um, and he votes really good on all the war bills. He's the only one that voted against every uh, Ukraine or Russia related bill since the war started. Um, so he's pretty dependable, but... I mean, we really need a sea change. We need people to to be against this policy of arming Ukraine, even though for many things, it doesn't seem like people power can really change much in Washington. But I still think that is going to be the, the factor that that could change the way uh, we're arming Ukraine. And it's also, you know, talking about all this domestic stuff, all the economic stuff, it is a really good time. You know, why are we worrying about what's happening in Ukraine? Why are we worried about Taiwan, when our country is in so much trouble, and it's so obvious to people now. I mean, you go to any major city now, and there's homeless people, you know, every, everywhere. It, it 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 it's something that wasn't as common in, in certain cities, but now just about everybody sees it. Um, so I think it's a good time to kind of preach uh, non-intervention and uh, uh, a less hawkish uh, foreign policy uh, because of the situation here. I'm glad you mentioned Taiwan because that's exactly where I wanted to go next. Because uh, for, <laughs> because for me, um, I work IT mostly, and one of the, my main concerns over the last few years, especially as as COVID kicked off, going really, I mean, really September of 2020 onward, as soon as Nvidia launched their 3000 series, um, immediately the the price of graphics cards literally exploded. It came to a point in May of 2021 where Graphics cards were selling for 400, almost 500% of their value. Just extraordinary. I mean, they were basically almost worth the rare earth minerals that were put inside of them. It it is it was extraordinary the amount of money that were being charged for them. And my main concern about all this is is that it's not just graphics cards, it's not processors in our phones. It's like processors for things like cars processors for things like the supply chain because everything in the supply chain you know talks to one another that's sort of how in the world in terms of economic trade how it was all set up how our entire economic system has been set up over the last 40 50 years is to just have materials from the most remote zones in the world comes the united states and so the united states and i said this before i am definitely within that 2020 bill there should have been an immediate if not an ARPA in 2021, this should have been immediate establishing of a national foundry, not global foundries in the United States, who's like, can't even get to seven nanometer. And that's for fascinating reasons. Northern European company that actually manufactures these huge semiconductor manufacturing units. And they take an incredible amount of man hours and rare earth minerals and whatnot. But it always seems that TSMC is always ahead of them in terms of reserving that. And so Global Foundry is not even able to achieve 7 nanometer. And the United States, I argued, should definitely set up a national foundry because there's no way to bring down these these costs because paying Intel or TSMC to come here and build one you know, in two years' time is not what we need. This is a wartime situation. You need to throw that thing together. There is no... like. 
the automotive industry is suffering the entire it field which is essentially the the a large section of the future of the economy was strangled for two years even up until now in terms of supply shortages and in terms of extraordinary price hikes and there was never a call for any sort of restriction of pricing because i i know that you say you know it would result in rationing you know money is rationing uh, in terms of capitalist system you, you're rationing out materials to those who can afford it at the very least if there's going to be rationing insofar as i see it i think there should be you know as a rad dim you know myself um you know lowercase d democrat is 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 to push for a much more democratic way of going about doing that and you know not through money but you know regardless i i did want to get into taiwan because that situation is very it is a flashpoint not only in terms of semiconductors because one out of every two semiconductors in the world comes out of taiwan that's that's big that's huge they are also within the united states influence because taiwan is also recently announced they're not going to export any chips to Russia that are over 25 megahertz, which is extraordinarily slow. They're essentially sending them junk, or it can even be something for like just TVs or things like remote controls, perhaps even small things within their military. But it's an extraordinary squeeze on Russia. And China does not have, Chinese you know, semiconductor companies are going bankrupt they cannot get access to materials from that northern european company to go about acquiring those machines so they're stuck on very very old tech when it comes to taiwan what's concerning is for me is that the united states has clearly pulled them under joe biden he is sort of pulled back from the drone war and i want to talk to jeremy scahill about this he's he's pulled back from the drone war in terms of you know barack obama and whatnot he's pulled back from from yemen somewhat He's really, you know, going out there with Ukraine and whatnot, but that's, you know, United States and Russia, that's age-old stuff. It's he 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 had to do that for the win. <laughs> I mean, that's that's US power, it's US establishment 101. But this this brewing conflict in you know the South China Sea is incredibly dangerous because Mao had to stop at at Taiwan due to him having to collect his country together and also United States nuclear weapons. But at this point, China is on the ascendancy. They're going to be able to complete their Silk Road with Russia. They've got trade is up. Last year, they grew at 8.1%. They got subsidies going out. They got some internal problems with COVID now, but they're dealing with it. It's an incredibly hostile situation that could break out into a soft war at any moment. And as I said a few days ago, I was like, yo, one bomb drops on TSMC. The global economy is going to collapse because you cannot have a situation where a country has one out of every two semiconductors coming out of that a country and a bomb drops on that factory. Price of their stock is going to collapse. And on top of that, there's going to be a huge run on supplies in terms of IT because Intel, uh, Samsung, Apple, NVIDIA, AMD, you name it, taper out materials from TSMC or want to. And if they can't do that, um, you know, without a war situation, it, it's going to it, it could very well turn into a, a, a hot war uh, very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a pretty bad situation right now with uh, China and Taiwan. Um, and it's mainly because how the U.S. has shifted its policy in the past few years. Um, you know, 
now the U.S. is, you know, taking these steps to increase cooperation with Taiwan. Um, some stuff is more symbolic. Uh, there's some economic cooperation. They're talking about a trade deal now. There's more U.S. Uh, warships, you know, patrolling around the South China Sea and near Taiwan, sailing through the Taiwan Strait. And all the things you mentioned about semiconductors, you know, from China's perspective, um, that gives them a motivation, you know, not to invade Taiwan and start a war on that island because besides just the semiconductors, they also have a very robust trade relationship. And also millions of Taiwanese mainland Chinese, they travel back and forth. It's in Beijing's interest to avoid a hot war, yeah. but they have warned over and over again that Taiwan is a red line and that if the U.S. kind of encourages what they call the independence forces to declare independence, that they are warning that that's the quickest way for the U.S. and China to go to war. So this is why the policy, even though it might seem silly to people, the policy of kind of increasing, we've seen a lot more congressional delegations to the island. Tammy Duckworth was just there. She was the latest. While she was there, Taiwan's president announced that the U.S. National Guard is going to start cooperating with the Taiwanese military. You know, we don't know many details about these agreements, but we're seeing this stuff more and more. And this is something that started under Trump when you mentioned the drone war. Biden's kind of shift away from that. Now, Trump did ramp up all the drone wars. He ramped up pretty much every war that Obama left him and then kind of backed down towards the end of his administration. But it's important for people to know that he bombed Somalia more than Bush and Obama did combined, <laughs> that he dropped more airstrikes on Afghanistan in 2018 and 2019 than any year since they started recording, since 2006, I believe. And he may have, it's not really confirmed, but he might have dropped more bombs on Yemen. And this is separate from the Saudi war against the Houthis. He uh, escalated the drone war against Al-Qaeda there too, while also backing a war against the Houthis. You know, Al-Qaeda is on the U.S. and Saudi side against the Houthis. So while that's happening, Trump was also bombing Al-Qaeda. Right. <laughs> um, so it's just the U.S. foreign policy. It's just it, it's so insane when when you look into facts like that. But but anyway, but he did kind of wind it down in the last year or two of his administration. And that's because the focus, as outlined by the National Defense Strategy published by his administration in 2018, is a shift away from counterterrorism in, in the Middle East towards, you know, what they call great power competition with China and Russia. And Trump was a Russia hawk, which a lot of people don't realize because they spent four years accusing him of elected by Vladimir Putin. He pulled out of arms control agreements, the INF Treaty, which which banned the development of short and medium range ballistic land based ballistic missiles. That was kind of his biggest to me. One of his biggest shames is what he did to arms control uh, treaties and arms control talks with Russia by pulling out of the INF. He pulled out of Open Skies, which was the Mutual Surveillance Treaty, sort of a symbolic trust building treaty because now there's they have satellites and you can pretty much see what you want now. Right, but right. <laughs> yeah, so he pulled out of that. He was the first one to send Javelin missiles to Ukraine. Uh, he ramped up the aid to Ukraine and China. And he ramped up, you know, all these warships in the South China Sea. And he started taking these steps to increase cooperation with Taiwan. And we've seen Biden pick up on this China policy and, and run with it and increase it, you know, more so. All the tariffs are still in place and all this Taiwan stuff. You, you know, you have Biden. He said it, I believe it's been three times since he came into office that he said the U.S. would defend Taiwan. If China invaded, which is not official U.S. policy, then the White House had to walk it back each time. You know, that could be, even though he is known for his gaffes, 
the last time, you know, it was on his first trip to Asia. It was a very high profile trip in Japan. So, uh, you know, he might have meant it as a message to China. But yeah, so, yeah. So, in my opinion, if the US goes down this road and we keep working to build alliances against China, and China is kind of facing a similar Western military buildup Russia has, which led to the to the war in Ukraine. It's not going to happen anytime soon, but next 10, maybe 20 years, if we keep doing this, then there probably will be a war in Taiwan. Again, you know, the U.S. can't go to war with China. They have nukes. They don't have nearly as many as the U.S. or Russia does, but they have enough that a war between the U.S. and China could mean the end of humanity. So we have to do everything possible to avoid it. If they try to just fund a proxy war in Taiwan like they are in Ukraine, it's just it's the Taiwanese that are going to be doing the fighting and dying for you know the U.S. goal of hurting China. So we'll see. I mean, it will take a serious economic decoupling too for, for all this to happen. And unfortunately, it seems like you know Democrats are, are pretty bad on China now and Republicans are all really bad too. I mean, there's hawks. They're all China hawks. So it's not, it's not looking good. I hope... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's the episode title. It's not looking good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's that's sort of my thing coming back to all this is like, yo, look, it was a few months away and it it got worse. It got got Mm -hmm. worse. Um, You know, I want to touch on a few things you said. I definitely want to agree with you on that. You know, in in the case of of Democrats on China, I mean, you got Tim Ryan out in in an Ohio race. Talking about how yeah, it's, yeah, it's us versus them. It's China ver- it, you know, it's China versus the United States. China. It's definitely China. One word, China. It is us versus China. And instead of taking them on, Washington's wasting our time on stupid fights. And he's just running this sort of quote unquote progressive message that is so and I mean for people on the left that is so anti-communist. And it is and you know, it, it, Chinese communism is has so many different problems with it. And it, it, that, that's an entirely different discussion. But in general, it is just this anti-leftist message. It's a it's a conservative uh, sort of American, almost like Dwight D. Eisenhower sort of argument that it's us versus the Reds, literally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got to go at it. And it could very well lead to a war within Taiwan between those who want to separate and also stay, you know, within China. You know, Taiwan considers itself independent. China does not maintain that at all. And of course, the United States and, and, and China's economy are deeply intertwined. It is a joke to think the United States and China would go to war. Um, but, you know, you know, who would have guessed that, you know, the that, that fallout, the, the plot line of fallout is exactly how the, <laughs> the world ends, which is a nuclear war between China and the United States. Um, you know, perhaps we actually do get Chinese forces invading Alaska. <laughs> you know, we'll see. We'll see. But it's an absolutely terrible state of affairs that China is now. I mean, I mean this sort of dynamic between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, China and the United States having this standoff because China is willing to go into Taiwan and it's right across their border. I mean, it's it's literally right next to the mainland. The United States very well could try to fund or or ship in arms, but eventually there's going to be an American plane shot down. Somebody's going to die. You know, some it, there's going to be a conflagration and they're going to be hotheads in the room, Democrats in particular. I can think of a few who would be hot on the button to go after this kind of stuff to actually try and instigate yeah. a war. And there, there's already uh, Democrats that 
um, Elaine Loria. She's a representative in in Virginia. You know, she represented the district that Norfolk is in, where all the shipyards are. Yeah. And she wrote an article. She wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post saying that Biden should get uh, Congress should give Biden war powers authorization to go to war with China if they invade Taiwan. Um, and you know we've seen this from like Tom Cotton and you know these kind of Republican ultra hawks, uh, Lindsey Graham and <clears throat> Adam Kinzinger, people like that. But to see from Luria, who I don't know too much about, she seems like she is a crazy hawk. <laughs> but there was also an article in Foreign Policy that kind of said that um, hawkish Democrats uh, or centrist Democrats, actually, how they explained it, are pushing kind of to change the policy on Taiwan. Um, and to commit to go in a war with China if they invade. Um, so that's very concerning. And again, with China, an important thing to keep in mind too with Taiwan is that it's a big island and for China to invade it, it would take the largest amphibious invasion in modern military history, in mil- any military history. So again, just it's in their interest to avoid it. But I think if we keep poking them like this, and again, like you said, how deeply intertwined the economies are. I think there is going to be a serious effort to decouple, not entirely, but more so than than it is now. And I think that all that will make war more likely. We will yeah. see. It, it, it's a hot situation. And seeing as though that China is moving closer to what are called the Solomon Islands, which are off the coast of Australia, Australia and China are very dependent economies, not to the same extent the United States and China are, but Australia and China are pretty close. And it's mainly due to the fact that much of Australia and the strength of their wage growth and strength of their economy is based off of commodity exports, (laughs) you know, something you mentioned earlier, and their wages, their job growth, all of that is pretty dependent on their ability to move those resources to other countries, coal to the Chinese, also an incredible amount of rare earth minerals. And so to see that they are australia is saying you know we're within this western project we have the right we have the assent of the u.s government to go about going into international waters and continuing our routine measures and china is sending a message especially this past weekend and they intercepted an australian plane they actually had to go about scrambling plane thankfully no one was hurt and there was no altercation that ultimately happened and beijing insofar as i understand still has not made a comment as of the time of this recording, but it's, it's, it's concerning. Um, it's, it's very concerning. The, the, you know, the idea that a lot of these wars could become hot wars at the very least, a lot mm-hmm. of these uh, diplomatic disagreements could become hot wars. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you being here, Dave. I'm glad that we were able to go over at least a good bit of what's going on in the world. I don't think we could squeeze absolutely everything into this. I think though, I think one last thing I do want to talk about is the summit of Americas that's coming up in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and the idea that Joe Biden is still trying to maintain, you know, it's amazing. He's doing, you know, he's saying that Venezuela can sell oil out to the UK, but won't allow it into the United States oil market. And so, and Donald Trump was very big on Venezuela. People thought that he was going to invade Venezuela for a long time. And as mm-hmm. far as I understand, he actually asked, you know, several of his cap, several members of his cabinet, whether or not he can actually do that. And they sort of laughed it off. But you know, that, that that was a real possibility there for a little while. He was commander in chief. My concern about this is, is that they're cutting out Nicaragua, Cuba, and also now Venezuela. But at the same time, they want to play this game whereby they want to have an exporting of oil and outside of Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, or Russia. 
what's the one place in the world you think of oil? It's, it's Venezuela. Mm. And Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is sort of a, a nationalistic figure within Mexican society. People say he's on the left. He's not really, but he's progressive for Mexico. <laughs> he's stating, I don't want to be a part of this if other countries are not going to be there because I, I, you know, I can't be associated with this. He didn't even, you know, congratulate Joe Biden on the day of or at least the day that the election was called. So there's this tension there between Mexico and the United States now. You know, Mexico is still sending a delegation to the conference, but Mexican president, you know, Lopez Obrador, he's not going to be there. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on that situation. Yeah, I, I think that's a big blow to the Biden administration's whole thing that they're trying to do, which is point of the summit is to show U.S. leadership in the region. And they're trying to act like they have rallied the world against what they call autocracies and uh, they're painting it as this battle between democracy and autocracy but it's very hypocritical on its face because of like I mentioned before the trip to Saudi Arabia and you know this policy of just trying to bully and isolate governments that they don't like I mean it's gotten so out of hand in in recent years with the Trump administration I mean just what they did to Venezuela openly trying to overthrow the government and install a puppet leader that was so like just brazen even i think you know the message to latin american leaders even ones that aren't sympathetic to the to venezuela to the chavistas uh you know stay in line or this is going to happen to you we saw it in bolivia yep but then the the uh the socialist party ended up winning the the next election after the coup so there was a win there you know, with, with Nicaragua, Ortega won an election and the U.S. claimed fraud and now they're facing sanctions. Not as bad as Venezuela or Cuba, but I just think people, countries are getting sick of this kind of attitude. And it's not going to play well for the U.S. goal of trying to counter Chinese influence in the region. And they want to discourage countries from signing trade deals with China. But China's trade deals, you know, they always talk about their debt trap diplomacy and stuff, but it it doesn't come with kind of these all these uh, conditions that the U.S. has. So it, it's becoming more appealing, I think, for countries to go with China. I mean, you look at the continent of Africa, the U.S. presence there is special ops, drone bases, and, you know, wars, really. China's presence is, you know, they're building tunnels and roads and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it's a big blow to the U.S. image on the world stage, which is taking, which its credibility is just more shot, you know, by the day, uh, the way that they're steering this administration. And I believe Mexico's president isn't going. Bolivia is also boycotting Honduras. And I think maybe Argentina or maybe Argentina said that they should have invited Venezuela and Cuba, but a few other countries have followed Mexico. So yeah, I think it's significant. I mean, even though it's the summit of the Americas, it's not the most important thing. The last one was in 2018. It's not like it happens every year. Still, it's still something because they wanted to use it to portray themselves as these global leaders and i think it really backfired yeah i mean i mean you can only you know you only manipulate countries insofar as your power is projected um and and you know united states power just in terms of competence and its ability to be able to keep its own economy straight outside of just pure financialization and just robbery of the u.s treasury and exploiting of the federal reserve i mean that's I mean, that's the mainstay of what we've been calling growth for the last like 20, 30 years. And our inability, the Gerald R. Ford class of carriers that have come out as of recently, these huge carriers 
are going to be replacing the Nimitz class carriers that are outgoing. And, you know, there's a U.S. law stating there has to be at least 11 of these things in operation <laughs> due to the fact that there are, you know, it's essentially two different sides of an ocean. It's a, you know, the Pacific and also the Atlantic. And there's also a specific fleet uh, of the United States Navy that is dedicated to the transportation of oil between the Middle East and United States, it, you know, it's anti-piracy and all the rest of this bullshit. It's it's literally free security for the oil industry. What's really incredible about this is there are many countries, you know, especially in the early 2000s, early 20 teens, late 2000s. There was a lot of le- there were a lot of left governments that were in power, you know, throughout South America. And over the last few years, whether it be through U.S. intervention or whether it just be backlash or just slaughter and murder, civil war. There are quite a few right-wing governments that have popped up now in South America. And yeah, the United States is is pretty blatant about quite a lot of this. You know, in, in the case of Bolivia, the United States was kind of clear about, you know, where their sympathies lie. In the case of Venezuela, the United States was very clear about what it was going to do. You know, and this stuff is cloak and dagger. It's very out in the open. Mm. And this idea that they're going to continue to bully and push around other countries, I just, I, I don't see it lasting for for very much longer mainly due to the fact that you just you just can't do that given the lack of reach the united states government now has you just cut russia and all the rest of those guys out you know chile in particular is a huge trading partner with china because the amount of raw materials that come out of that country to china you're not going to bully and intimidate chile to just not sign a trade agreement with with china it's like a lot of these countries would be like well are you going to provide that then and -hmm. the answer is no the answer is, of course, the United States doesn't have those supplies. And I think as that answer continues to come up as no, those countries are going to start looking at what the Russians and Chinese are doing and the South Africans are doing. They'd be like, you know what? You, you know, we're going to take our chances. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's I mean, I, either we die with you overthrowing <laughs> a government or I die because my government's overthrown because my people don't have jobs, food to eat and, and all the rest of this U- U.S. security forces or supplies are only going to go so far if people are starving and yeah it's just not going to work out yeah and we're seeing that in southeast asia too that the u.s is trying to get these southeast asian countries to pick a side but they don't want yeah. to they don't want to choose but if they are going to choose many of them are going to choose you know the regional power which is china um so yeah that that's a, a, another thing we can kind of hope for is that the because the u.s they want to install like a network of missiles of long-range missiles in Asia, close to China, but they haven't found a country that is willing to host them. So it's kind of what we hope for is that these countries don't go along with the, the U.S.'s plans when it comes to China. But then again, you have Japan, and now South Korea has a more hawkish president, and they're kind of willing to play ball and yeah. increase and really boost their military. Especially in the case of Japan, like you know, it's been covered by Vice in a lot of places for a while. There is a serious movement now within Japan to repeal that constitutional amendment or that portion of their constitution that forbades them from having essentially a military. You know, they have a what's called the NDF, the National Defense Force. But mm-hmm. these guys, they're getting more aggressive. South Korea now has a put it this way, a more reactionary president. And they're going to begin moving against people like North Korea, which is a huge ally of China. That kind of signals a shift in a more hawkish policy. Uh, and the, the Biden administration has totally, you know, it hasn't made any progress on North Korea. They say that they're open to talks, but they haven't offered anything to bring them to the table, like sanctions relief or 
even just cool down on the rhetoric. They see South Korea again. They want the U.S. pretty much has control over the South Korea and and Japanese militaries. They just loosen restrictions on South Korea's abilities to build long range missiles. So now South Korea can have their own long range missiles, and they want Japan. They I think there are a lot of elements in the U.S. that want. Japan to change their constitution and to be able to have weapons that can strike other countries. So it puts China in range there. Something that we're going to see kind of develop more, I think. Yeah, I mean, I hope it doesn't uh, because, you know, that that situation could get very hot. North Korea does yeah. have nuclear weapons, so does China. And it it just seems that these governments, and, and, that's, and that's sort of the problem is the, Japan not having any military was based on the idea that the United States is this global empire. It's in the aftermath of World War II. Noam Chomsky talks about this all the time in terms of in terms of United States power after World War II, which was we had one out of every two dollars in the world was invested in the United States. Security on both sides of the ocean, no threats whatsoever. It was a historically, in the case of human history, completely unprecedented. And, of course, it led to extraordinary economic growth and power of the United States into what it is today, or at least into what it, it's, it seems now what it was. But it, it, it's just, it, it's very bizarre to me, or at the very least, it's, it's upsetting to see the decline of the U.S. empire and to see that these countries are going along with this, because what it seems like is there's going to be sort of a regional conflict. Eventually, somebody is going to go to war with someone. And major powers in the world haven't gone to war in almost 100 years. But, you know, just like a few months ago, there hadn't been a war of of that stature between major powers in Europe since 1945. And now it was almost 100 years and they just set it on fire. Putin was like, yep, nope, I'm going to do it. You know, other countries are starting to get out of that U.S. influence and they're just going to start doing what it is they want, like, this historical epoch of U.S. control over the world is not somehow like some static constant of the universe is just going to continue forever. Fortunately, it, it seems that it's 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 beginning to to come apart. I really do appreciate you, Dave, being on today. I know you got other things to do. Yeah, I really appreciate talking to you. It's always awesome having you on. I hope we can make this like an actual regular thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me know. Thanks for having me on again.